And there will be bills that show up that are like a thousand pages long and that just came out of like Nancy Pelosi's butt. Like there's just (laughs) these things just appear. And I had no idea what I was getting into. So you are now listening to the living numbers and Tony Rambles, 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 and the Living Numbers Podcast. This is the Living Numbers Podcast, where the numbers tell the story, but the people give it purpose. It's all about the people. Make sure you all subscribe to get extra episodes. Make sure you download, share, like. Y'all know the drill. This is not your first routine. Now, we have a wonderful guest here, another person that I met at Podcast Movement uh, just in August. So I'll keep pumping those out. I had Donald on, which is a friend of Jen's. And so I was like, I got to get both of them. And so I'm happy that I have Jen here now. But you all know how we do things. When we have someone on for the first time, we have to give them an elaborate, extravagant intro. And this is no different. So, hailing from Oakland, California, I believe, she earned her degree in communications and media studies from Loyola Marymount University. Shout out to Iggy the Lion. She got her start in communications as an intern on the AVP Pro Volleyball Tour. She also spent time in a thankless industry that can be tons of fun or suck. She was a waitress. I also have experience in that industry. And she does real news by looking at the past, not trying to predict the future. She makes politics easy to understand and fun to listen to on her very own podcast, The Congressional Dish, which I have listened to, and it is awesome. Daddy's Girl, Information Hunter, and officially on Team Taxpayer, I present the Jennifer Briney. Say hello to the people. Hello, and I'm pretty sure that's my favorite intro ever, so thank you very (laughs) much. I'm glad. I'm glad I could uh, pull some stuff. I always go and listen to interviews and I listen to your podcast. And I really meant that because I was listening to it. And if you're not, you know, into politics, like I would say you are, you could get bogged down when they start talking about, you know, the rhetoric and the lingo and build this and that. And you go, okay, what am I, what am I hearing? And when I listened to your podcast, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Easy to understand and entertaining. So, thank you. That's the goal. This all kind of started here. To understand it. Yes, that's exactly what you do, and I'm glad because now I feel like I can listen to something with politics. I'll just listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I approve of that plan. <laughs> so we got to kick it to our first number now. You graduated from the only high school with three Heisman Trophy winners, (laughs) modern day high school, which is kind of a big deal, especially in sports, which we will surely get to. But how did going to this kind of 
this high school that's kind of a big deal, at least from the outside looking in. I'm pretty sure it's like that over there too. You don't have three Heisman Trophy winners just by accident. How did going to this huge school that's also a Catholic school, how did that shape you for like post high school life? I know it's kind of a lot there in that first question. No, and it's it's a really good question. It's one of those things that if I had a therapist, we would have spent many thousands of dollars talking about because um, it really was formative for me um, and not – it made me rebel against authority for sure because a lot of the rules were stupid because um, it was a Catholic school. I got so many detentions because I didn't like to wear socks. And it was part of the dress code. And so they just, I wasted so much of my life just sitting in detention. Of course, my parents were like, just wear socks. I was like, no, the rule is stupid. It's none of their business if I wear socks. Like, I just, I definitely rebelled against um, that part of the school. But then I also, I saw a lot of hypocrisy in authority at that school mm. because they had such an emphasis on sports. And so there were things that the athletes could get away with that us mere mortals could not. Um, mm. There was an unfair drug testing policy. I was not making that school any money, and they kept testing me over and Whoa, over again. wait a and yet, second. Mm-hmm. Drug testing in high school? Yes. It's one of the reasons my mother wanted me to go there. She was convinced I was going to be a bad seed, and so they – they took me out of my public school and put me in private school, which to this day I maintain was not exactly fair, but they did what they thought was best. Mm. And so the school just kept drug testing me over and over again. And a lot of people that weren't in their athletic programs, was we were getting tested m- more than once um, a year. Wow. And then there were athletes that everyone knew damn well were smoking weed all summer that were too valuable to get caught and they just weren't getting tested. I, I have a good friend who is pretty high up in that school and he never got tested once in all four years. And so I I saw that power could be unfair. And that's the mm. first time I really learned that the adults in the, rule, the room um, could be swayed by money and by things that were not ethics and morals and that the words wouldn't match the actions. And so really that school for me, I think did set me up for my career, ironically enough, because I was able to look at what was happening in that microcosm in my high school. And then I could see the same things happening in the government. And so I'm still rebelling against authority that I think is unfair and, and has a lot of deference to money and their words don't match their actions. It's very much the same thing. And that um, that rebelliousness that's that's where it started was in that in that school. That's I'm a high school teacher, so I can kind of relate to where some people get special treatment. You know, based on you know what they do and you know their name. You kind of go, well, can you just let so and so off the hook? And I try to be that person that goes, I don't really care uh, what you do in school. No, as a matter of fact, I do care. However, if you want to continue to do that, you got to be able to take care of business everywhere else. And that is my outlook because I think that is the fair way to do it. And I think that teaches people a more valuable lesson, which is 
you really got to take care of your business and do what you have to do to be able to do what you want to do. Because that's real life for most people. And all too often, um, obviously, we could apply this to athletes because that's usually the people that we see that get this special treatment because the sports are so popular. And depending on what school you go to, it may be football, it may be basketball. Those are typically the ones. <laughs> it's usually one of those. Uh, but they get this this treatment like they don't have to abide by the same rules. And that, I hate that. I really yeah, do. So I try to be one of those people that doesn't serve the kids clear. well either because yes. um, there was one particular star. I, I just knew every morning he had a, a morning class that he never went to, ever. And when he went to college, he didn't last very long. And so as an mm. adult, he wasn't served very well. And so to watch watch the negative repercussions of that for the kids too, I felt was really unfair. It was like the the kids were kind of used for the sports and then what happened to them after was not really a, a concern. And um, that's not what the school's supposed to do. So I'm glad that you're you're trying to be one of the good ones. I try. I really do. And um, it's really interesting how this, like right before before we get to be adults, how much these experiences shape us. So was there any political interests while you were in school? My guess would be no. No, no, not at all. Um, I was, so modern days in Orange County, California. So I'm not really from Oakland, even though I did live there for the last six years. Um, so that's not inaccurate. I'm definitely, I have Oakland in my soul for sure. But I was raised in uh, Irvine, which is a Republican, relatively rich area. And so um, my parents were Republican. And when I turned 18, I voted for George W. Bush because that's what us Republicans do. It really was that stupid of a, a reason. It was just, it was a tribal thing for me. And so when I, I think I was 20, when we started the Iraq war. And, you know, back then I had friends that joined the military for the the college money. You know, there, there was no uh-huh. wars, there was no threat to that. And then all of a sudden they went overseas and they were fighting in some war that no one really understood why we were there. And a few of them died and it was just, it was very serious. And so really that war, it wasn't even 9-11 because I was an adult when that happened, but I was still just like, oh, that's a giant crime. Like we'll get the bad guys and that'll be over. Like that didn't even really do it. It was the war because it Mm. wasn't something that was done to us. It was a choice. And I was living in Germany at the time and I saw how angry the world was at us. And yet I had been told that everybody loves America and everyone supports the war. And yet that wasn't true. And so to see that with my own eyes and then come back here and those myths were still believed, it was like, okay, why is it that this experience was so different. And then I come back and then I was able to, through documentaries and stuff, see what people here were seeing on the news, which was very much, um, it was almost like a a commercial for the news, you know, talking about the shock and awe campaign and how cool these weapons are going to be. And it wasn't a serious discussion. It was cheerleading. It was, it was propaganda, I guess is the correct word for it. And, um, and I was never the same after that. It wasn't even being in Europe when the war started. It was coming home. That was hard because I just assumed that everyone here was having the same kind of response that I did. Like the war was so terrible that everyone at home was angry about it. And um, to come home and see how f- 
how few of my friends cared. And it wasn't like I was different from my best friends. So it's like we had to have different experiences. And so I just mm. saw my own country in a completely different light and never recovered. <laughs> I started asking questions. And every time I got an answer, there were 50 more questions. And that still happens to me all the time. And so, yeah, that that experience took me on a path that you know, when I go back to my, I guess my, I don't know, 30 year reunion, because my 20 year got canceled because of COVID and they're not rescheduling it. Oh, so man. whatever reunion we get next, um, there's going to be a lot of people that are surprised by what I'm doing because there was just no indication of this. If you knew me in high school, I was just dumb. I'm like, wait, vapid. Her? <laughs> no, no way. Yeah. Yeah. It's that will like be the reaction. It's nothing like living overseas and seeing how other people view us to go, huh, okay, yeah. Because over here, we're fed one thing, and then we're fed something different about other countries as well. And then yeah. we go out and we experience those countries, because I lived in China for a year teaching English. And mm. it was totally different, because people would would be legitimately concerned, like, are, you know, are you okay over there? Like, you know, is the government trying to get you and stuff? I was like, I'm from Detroit. I feel safer over here than I yeah. did over there. Like, nobody has guns. That's one yeah. thing that was very, very obvious. Not even the police. They had sticks. That was it. Um, it never felt hostile. So what was your experience going to Germany, because I believe you went right after high school, right? And that's also a country that we have been fed a lot of stuff about, you know, based on history. So how was it different when you got there? Yeah. Um, so I was a junior in college when I went and I was there for five months and I felt the same way. Um, I felt safer in a lot of ways, like the cops, like you mentioned, they're on the street. They're not in their cars. They're not separate from us. They're not dressed like stormtroopers. They're on the street. They're speaking to people. They generally know people's names. Um, I felt like if I was minding my own business, drinking a beer outside, ooh, like they left me alone. In a lot of ways, I felt more free over there. Mm. Um, I also felt like the infrastructure and this is what I've noticed, and it's been bothering me a lot lately as I, I continue to travel because it's been the same in Portugal and Poland and all these different places that we're told are like backwards, you know, like we're better than them. And yet it's so much safer to get around there without a car or even in a car because mm. the cars are smaller and the just the way the infrastructure is set up, it keeps it separate between the bikes and the people and the cars and, and yep. people respect the, the, the crosswalks. and um, I just – I go overseas and I've spent most of my time in Mexico and in Europe and I generally feel safer and in so many different levels. It's not just like the lack of guns, although that is huge, especially having living in – lived in Oakland. Like you kind of play the game of gunshot or firework. Like you, Sometimes you just yep. don't know, but you hear stuff all the time. Um yeah, it, so just knowing that plus the health insurance, like I got, I got really sick in Germany and my mm. eyes crusted shut. Like it was one of those diseases where I'm like, I don't know what I have, but this is freaky and I've never had it before. And just the experience of getting healthcare over there 
was very eye-opening. The doctor's office was right across the street. They have them all over the place. They're tiny. I mean, you wouldn't – it's about the size of like a, a Subway sandwich. But they just have these doctors that work in like pairs and some days they don't have patients because they don't. That's kind of the yeah. goal is to have no patients because everyone's healthy. Like that's great. And um, so I went in there. There was no line. I didn't have to pay anything. And the wildest part is they called the next day to just see how I was doing. And wow. in general, if you have a fever, the doctor comes to you so that you're not getting people sick on the you know, the subways or however you get there. It's just a totally different approach to healthcare. And if people are healthy and a doctor gets paid for one day for like not doing anything, that's considered a successful day. We're here. We require mm. our doctors to constantly be churning out patients. Like I haven't had a doctor spend more than 15 minutes with me no matter what the ailment was in many years here in the state. So even in that regard, I felt safer there because I knew that if I had something that wasn't like cancer level, but like if I broke my arm, they were going to treat me and I wasn't going to go you know, bankrupt or lose thousands of dollars. Like I knew I could go to the doctors here. That's not the case. So um, yeah, there's a lot of ways that I felt safer overseas. And I think that also made motivated me eventually to come home and be like, okay, there's something wrong with the way we are governing ourselves. We can do better. And so I started looking into like, okay, so how are we governing ourselves? Because you have to understand the mm. problems in order to solve them. And um, I think I'm getting to the point where I understand them, <laughs> but the what to do about it with the power structure in this country, that's that's a problem. But um, I'm getting better at spotting what we're doing differently. So I guess okay. that's helping in my own way. Man, that's that's all we can really do. Like not everybody is going to run for Congress or not everybody is going to, uh, you know, be boots on the ground in the communities and not everybody's going to be a podcaster. So that kind of brings us to our next number here, which uh, I was looking at, okay, what's kind of a big deal right now? And maybe you've touched on it, maybe you haven't, but our next number here is 400 billion because apparently uh, to get rid of student loans, that's how much mm. it would cost. <laughs> so uh, a few things. I want you to talk about your podcast and kind of the origins where you made that first move to go, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. And then what did you have to do first? What was step one besides getting that amazing intro music? <laughs> um, well, you know, while since that's our number, uh, 400 billion for student loans, I do Go think it's it. worth noting that one step I didn't have to take was that I didn't have to pay off student loans. I was lucky mm. enough to have parents that paid for my college for me. And so I don't know if I could be doing this job if I had to pay thousands of dollars a month in debt for that education that I got, which honestly, Aside from studying abroad, like that was my junior year. I came back senior year and focused really hard on my studies because I came back a completely different person and wanted to understand the media. And like, so I was really into it. Um, mm -hmm. I got very lucky that I did get something out of that education, but there are plenty of people that don't. They get the degree, but they didn't really get the knowledge because they were just in it for the piece of paper. Yeah. So there's, yep. there's a lot of that people means. that end up like that. And I got very lucky. So that was one thing where I, as long as I could pay my rent 
and afford some food, I was able to do it. And, um, and when I started, really, it was just because I was becoming quite unpleasant to be around. <laughs> I was watching C-SPAN and reading bills and laws and finding out all this stuff and just like yelling <laughs> to my husband and my friends, just being like, nobody knows about this. This is insane. How is this possible? And it was like, I needed an outlet so that I could get that out to the people that wanted to hear it. And then when I was hanging out with others that you know, didn't need the intense side of me that I could be normal and like talk about the movies or whatever stupid stuff they were talking about. So mm. that's really how it started. Um, I was very lost in my career. I didn't have a career. I was doing odd jobs. And and so it was like, okay, I'm going to try this podcasting thing for a year. I had worked while my husband was in grad school. So we kind of switched and he said, do it for a year. Don't worry about money for one year. Um, our bills are paid. It'll be fine. And just see if A, nice. you like the work and B, after a year, we'll see if anyone wants to pay for it and if there's any avenue for money. Because this was back in 2012. So Serial didn't mm -hmm. even come out until 2014. And the biggest hurdle for me when I told people what I was doing is they would say, what's a podcast? <laughs> so <laughs> like it was when I told my dad, like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And he goes, how are you going to make money? And I'm like, I don't know. I will. And he's like, okay, that's not the best business plan, but let's see how that goes. <laughs> But I knew I wanted to travel full time and this was something that could travel with me if I could make it work. And so it really was just, I had an idea that I mm. wanted to exist in the world and figured if I was hungry for it, maybe other people would be hungry for it too. And it turns out that bet was right. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was a combination of factors that, that got this off the ground. How'd you come up with the intro music? So there used to be this cool website for podcasters. It was called Mevio. And they had a music directory where independent artists could go and put their music and then we could use them in our podcast without having to worry about copyright and any of that stuff. So on Mevio, I found this song, Tired of Being Lied To by David Ippolito, who is – he's the guitar man. He actually performs – every weekend in Central Park and has been doing this forever in New York City. And um, wow. yeah, so I found David's music on on Mevio. And then eventually I found him on Twitter when Mevio disappeared. I don't know where it went, but um, I found him and then I got his official permission. And so David and I, like, we talk on Twitter sometimes. And uh, yeah, so that's one of those cool podcaster music exchange things. And I'm sure there's others that exist yeah. now, but that was the one I used back 10 years ago. I heard it and I was like, this, this is at the very least, I can appreciate this. I, <laughs> I heard it. It was so creative. It was so funny and it instantly drew me in. And those are the kind of things I'm always looking for in everything. So I had this, I'll tell this story because this is, I can respect it. I respect it. So this kid, right? I'm always like, okay, if y'all have any questions, use our website, right? Message me there. And of course they never do. So they send me <laughs> emails, but this kid in particular sent me a DM on Twitter, not on Twitter, on um, IG, on Instagram. Because I talk about my podcast or whatever. I got my little business cards in there. I'm always I'm always promoting. So he sends me a DM about an assignment. And so at first, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> I 
But then I go, huh? Okay, kids trying to get it done. I respect it. I respect it. So most teachers, most anybody will probably flip. But me, I'm like, you know what? I respect you for that. I told him as much. I told the whole class. I'm like, okay, this is what this kid did. I do not prefer you to DM me on Instagram. Do not do that. (laughs) However, I always tell y'all, figure it out. Get it done. Find a way. And he did. So I respected him for it. So I say all of that to say, how has your podcast changed over time? Because I know it's just kind of, Mm. it's part of it. You know, over time, you you tweak things, you move things around, you add, you cut. So how has that changed for you? Oh, man, it's changed a lot. I mean, I go back. I don't do this often because it's a painful experience, but I listen to some of the early ones and they are flaming hot garbage. Like, they're so bad. Um, <laughs> but I have a friend, Chris Krumitsos. He does PodFest. And um, his phrase is, start ugly. And that's what I did. I just started and I didn't have much of an audience, but I just, I got it done and I learned as I went. And so, um, in the beginning, because I didn't really know anything about Congress and I knew that. And so I decided that for two years I was going to read every bill that passed the house of representatives. In fact, my Mm. original idea was this naive. I thought that I was going to read, I was I'd like look at the schedule I'd read all the bills on like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I'd record on Thursday so that on Friday people could understand what they were voting on in Congress, which I know now is impossible because that schedule means nothing. And there will be bills that show up that are like a thousand pages long and that just came out of like Nancy Pelosi's butt. Like there's just (laughs) these things just appear and I had no idea what I was getting into. So that idea went sour really quick. But for two years, I did read every bill that passed the House of Representatives and it was horrible. Mm. Um, There were multiple times that there were thousand page bills. And because it was my first time, I know now that there's stuff that you're going to see come over and over again in these same bills every single year, but it was my first time. So I learned a lot about the process. I was angry. I cried on air a lot. It was ugly. But it Mm. set me up for understanding how that place works. And so over the years, I've tried different things with every new Congress. A Congress is two years long. So I started reading things from the House and the Senate, but that was clearly too much. Then I, I focus more on laws now because now I know that there's thousands of bills that are introduced every year. And just because a bill is crazy and excellent podcast, you know, fodder, it's not serving anyone to learn about a bill mm-hmm. that is not going to affect your life. So I focus more on laws now. I focus more on hearings now too, because I learn so much about what's going on in the world. And the hearings make me especially mad because they are so easy to watch and summarize. And yet I don't understand why our corporate media doesn't bother. Like there will be Mm. two dozen hearings in a day. So if you're looking for stories, there's just tons of them and experts that are testifying about all kinds of different things. And I love the hearings. And so my job is still difficult because there's more content than I could ever know what to do with. But I think I'm getting good at figuring out what matters, what's going to affect us most, um, and just choosing the topics that that are going to help people vote in November. 
Like that's really my goal is so that when someone goes to look at the job performance of the person that's representing them to at least have a few bills that they can be like, I would like this person to vote yes on this, no on this and check and see if that matters or if it matches. And, um, and yeah, so I, I'm getting better at it, but I think it's always going to be evolving because I, I still feel like I'm very far from doing it correctly, whatever that means. So yeah, it's constantly changing. Do you have like a specific, and you are you have over two hundred episodes. So this may be a little bit more difficult for you, but do you have a specific turning point or episode where you go, okay, I think I'm on to something that that's good that I can grow? Yeah, it happened right around the two hundredth episode, so fairly recently. I've had a couple of different times where I've had a shift. So it actually happened around 100 and then around 200 where Mm. I felt pressure to read every bill. I eventually abandoned that. But then around 200, I just – I decided that my schedule was not going to be as rigid anymore because it was very important to me to do what I said, which was two episodes a month. And like I wasn't – I didn't take a vacation for five years. It didn't matter like Mm. what the holidays were. It didn't matter. I just like worked nonstop for five years and it was killing me and I was going to burn out. Um, And so around 200, I decided some months there's only going to be one episode because I need a break. And some months there's only going to be one episode because I'm reading an extremely long bill and it is what it is. And, um, And just the structure of it, I just decided to commit to each episode is going to be the best I can possibly make it. I'm going to dive as deep as I need to if I need the extra time and I lose the money because I do a per episode uh, structure on Patreon. So when I don't do an episode, it costs me thousands of dollars. And um, Mm. But I just kind of leaned in more to the art of it and I'm enjoying the work more. Even when I take the financial hits, I feel reinvigorated by it. Yeah. It's like I made these rules a long time ago with how I was supposed to do my own show. And then I found it like stupid. It was stupid looking back on it. Like it's my show. I should be able to change it. But once I said I was going to do something, I felt like that was written in stone. So um, yeah, I'll experiment with formats. In fact, I just did that. My 258th episode was a brand new format, which was a lot less of me and a lot more of a, a hearing and it was received well, which is great. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm feeling more free artistically since around episode 200, mm-hmm. and that has just breathed new life into me and into the show. Yeah, there's just something about those big changes of the digits and the three in that you know 100s column yeah, yeah. that both times it happened, um, the show and I changed a little bit too. It's kind of strange. That's awesome that we can give ourselves room because you start out with one mind and you're doing it the best you feel like you can. And then you start to look at it and you're like, okay, I need to change something like this. Mm -hmm. Or I just have an idea. I want to do something different. And it's important to continue to give yourself that so that you don't burn out. Uh, Like we were talking about before, you know, most podcasts don't go past episode seven. Yeah. And here you are, 250 plus episodes. I was like, man, this that's a lot of episodes. 
It's a lot of episodes and it's 10 yeah. and my 10 year anniversary was last week. So it's just, wow, it's been a long time. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's wild that I was able to keep it going. And when people ask me, what am I most proud of? It's keeping it going. Cause there was more than one time where I was like, this is too much. I hate this. And mm. I just kept doing it. And then I think changing it when I had to, cause it's like, when you get a certain level of success, it's like, if I change this, I might ruin it. You know, <laughs> like mm. if I change this, everyone might go away. And I kind of had to abandon that fear and know that, yeah, some people are going to go away. But if I'm enjoying making it more and if I'm enjoying the product more, then I have to make the bet that more people are going to replace the ones that left. And it took a yep. while to get to that place where it was like I had to get over that fear in order to do it. Um, and I think that's an important lesson too with longevity. You know, it's it's an ugly process and it's when you press record that first time, it's going to be very different from where you end up. And I'm sure that when we talk, you know, 10 years from now and I'm still doing this crazy show, it's going to be completely different from what it is now. It's just we have to be willing to evolve in order to keep keep going. Uh, when I set out first, I guess a year and a half ago, I had this thought because I listened to I don't really listen to like a ton of podcasts or a ton of people, but the people I do listen to, I've been listening to them forever. And it's mostly sports stuff. But I feel like you listen to whatever it is you listen to for the people, right? And if that format changes, you still like the person. Like if somebody listens to you, Jen, it's because they like Jen. Like they could go anywhere for their politics or for their news, but they keep coming to you over and over and over again. So I feel like for for the most part, whatever you put out, they trust you. And so I had to, because obviously when you start, there's a lot of noise. Like, what is this person doing? What is that person doing? Do I need to change my format? Do I need to do it like this or that? And like you said, you just got to go, okay, this is what I want to do. And this is how I'm going to set out to do it. I'm going to do it the best that I can. So we <laughs> With you doing it that way and staying true to it and doing the research, because clearly you have a lot of stuff to read. I do want to talk about politics because I feel like you're a great person to talk about politics with, especially <laughs> for someone who doesn't know much about politics. So one of my questions that I wanted to ask is how have administrations changed, I guess, over the past three? Because they've been very, very different, right? Because you got Obama who, let's face it, most Black people love Obama, just number one, because he's Black, and that means something to us, but also how he speaks, right? Many of us don't know anything about his politics. That's, I think that's an educated guess for myself. And then you have Trump, who in the beginning you go, okay, he's not from politics. He's kind of a business guy. He's rage against the machine. Like, this could be good. And then it was something else, okay? And then you have now. <laughs> it was whatever that you was. Have Biden. <laughs> yeah. Man, I mean, you know, you know, people have their whatever. And now you have Biden who couldn't be more different than the past two presidents that we've had. A lot of people are like, this guy's asleep at the wheel. So from someone who's had, 
has actually been studying these things. Can you just give my listeners the layman's terms of how have these administrations been different? You know, it's funny that you want to frame it as how they're different because for me, I think what's most fascinating is how alike they all are. And mm, yeah. and the word that I would use to describe all three is corporate. All three of them. Mm. Um, you know, Obama, I was so excited for him in 2008, but I was in Europe again during the primaries when him and Hillary were going at it. And so to watch the coverage from over there, they're just way more honest about what's going on there. And so they were covering the, you know, who's donating to these people. And um, it was very clear even before he was elected that he was going to be corporate. And he was, you know, like the bankers went and stole millions of our houses. It was straight up fraud and they didn't get in any trouble for that. And it was Obama's, you know, Justice Department. It was his people that allowed that to happen. It was um, Attorney General Eric Holder. It was his decision to let all of them get away with that. And then you had Trump, who is just a walking, talking, fraudulent corporation. <laughs> And then there's Joe Biden, who's uh, he was Obama's vice president the entire time. He was the senator from Delaware, which fun fact, uh, if you look at your credit card, the it's pretty likely that your credit card company is based in Delaware because that state is so banker friendly that all of those companies are based in Delaware. And he was their senator for Christ's sake. So it's we've just one of the things that's been striking to me, because what I do, I don't really do politics. I do government and I'm paying attention mm -hmm. to Congress. And what's amazing to me is with all these changes in administration, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, we're still always at war. The corporations are still getting gifts. Like we're in a democratic, like the, the Republican party has been known as the, the party of big business for a long time and for good reason. But the Democrats with Republican help, just passed this semiconductor law, which is a massive taxpayer gift to an industry that's already profitable. But they had moved their operations overseas so that they could labor shop, so that they could pay people less than minimum wage. And then like, mm -hmm. oh, whoopsie daisy, we don't make anything here anymore. And so our car companies can't get computer chips and like none of the companies here can get what they need. And so we need to pay to build their factories here. And like there was no guarantee that at the end of this that we even get profit sharing with these companies. It was just like, here's a one-way deal. Here's our tax money. It goes to you and then you can profit forever more off that. That's a bipartisan wow. consensus with both of these parties. And it goes in the executive branch. It goes in Congress. And it's it's not something I went looking for. Because like I said, when I started this, I knew nothing. It just became incredibly obvious. And there's three industries in particular that just have our government owned at this point. Banking, pharmaceuticals, fossil fuels. It's amazing to me, the control they have over our government. And um, and yeah, and so when I look at these, you know, the differences are on cultural things. The differences are mm -hmm. on abortion. And they're constantly trying to divide us by sex and race and anything that they can divide us on. Because if you try to change the conversation to class, we outnumber them. 
and we're getting screwed. <laughs> like we are united in that when it comes to economics and you know workers yep. versus the shareholder class cuz so much of what they do just funnel it funnels money to the people that make their money in stock. And so um that's what I've witnessed over the last 10 years and it's a pattern mm. that once you start to see it you see it everywhere. And um yeah, so that's when when I look at these last 10 years, that, that's what I see. I see the similarities. A bunch of bull crap. Yeah. <laughs> <They're>, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yep. They're all paying the same people and the people who don't have the money, right? The haves and the have nots. Those are the people, me, you, my wife downstairs, <laughs> we're yeah. the one footing the bill. Uh, so well, and even some of the people that we consider rich, are in our category. Like I consider Joe Rogan to be one of us because he works for his money. Um, the people mm. that I think are doing this test are a very small group of people. And that's why I call them the shareholder class because they, they get their money by having money to put in the stock market. And then all of these different avenues that I'm seeing, like the semiconductor law, that's a ta it's a wealth transfer because what you're doing is you're giving it to a company that is going to hand out some of that to the shareholders, which is what they exist to do. Like these companies don't exist to help our, our society. They exist to pass out money to their shareholders. But half of Americans don't have any stock at all. And I think the stat was, it was something crazy where like the top 1% now holds over 85% of all the stocks. So it, that is like when you look at this massive wealth transfer that has been well-documented that has happened in my lifetime, that's how it was done. And so answering that question for me was like a big light bulb and it took years for me to get there. But when you look at the wealth transfer, I'm like, how did they do it? That's how they do it. And so when I look at the haves and have-nots, the have-nots are actually a much larger category than we seem to think. Like you can be in right. the middle class and own a home or two and still be on the side of the workers, you know, like it's mm. a very small group of people that are controlling things, but they keep us uneducated. They keep us having to, and the vast majority of us have to work paycheck to paycheck and, and struggle. And so we can't pay attention and it's, that's how they get away with it. Um, but yeah, we outnumber them in the ways that matter. And so that's another thing that I try and do on my show. I don't do a lot of episodes on the things that they want us to talk about, that they want us to be divided mm. by. I like to focus on the things I focus on class a lot. Um, because those are the ways, those are the things they're focused on. And so I think we need to focus on them too. So, yeah. So that actually brings me to a question that I have written down here is, <laughs> What are some things that people get wrong about politics and government? Like people like us, you mentioned it a, a few of them. You go, well, these administrations weren't really that different. It was just all about the cultural things. So what are some other things that you hear maybe in your friend circles, maybe just being around, maybe at a diner or whatever, where you go, if you only knew, what are some of those kind of things? Yeah. Um, I was shocked by how our government is functioning and how much of it is done. 
And I don't think this is terribly surprising. I feel like people can smell this now in a way that they probably couldn't like 20 years ago. But how much of our government is done by people we don't elect and in secret? Um, I've seen the numbers now. The classified budget in our war budget is unbelievable. Um, Tens of billions of dollars every single year. And we have no idea where it goes. We also have these things called transfer authorities. So you think the the money's going to one thing, but then they're allowed to move it around really at will, and they don't really have to tell the American people when they do that. So even when I read these bills and I tell you this thing is getting funded, like we're not really sure because they have so much ability after the money goes out the door to to throw it around at each other. Um, and then just like the government funding process is hopelessly broken. So there's like I said, there's thousands of bills that get introduced every year. But the majority of legislating that I've seen happens at the end of the year. One opportunity is the government funding crisis. And it's always a crisis every year, at least. at least Yeah. It's at least since I've been doing this. So it's been 10 years and it is consistent. In fact, we are recording this on September 27th. The government's supposed to be funded this Friday by the 30th. It is not. And so they're doing the same thing they do every year, which is they kick their deadline until a week before Christmas. The new deadline is going to be December 16th. The pattern lives on. And then they pass this massive government funding law. And it's supposed to be 12 different laws that are carefully crafted. Nope. It goes all at once, one massive bill, and then all kinds of stuff gets stuck onto it that never got a hearing on its own, that never got a vote on its own. They just attach all kinds of stuff, and then that's what piggybacks into law. And because they do it right before Christmas, no one looks at it. In fact, I even have trouble getting through it because it's always thousands of pages long. Uh, One of them was 5,000 pages in the last couple of years. Like I didn't stand a chance. So I try and, you know, find what I can, but there's all kinds of stuff that's becoming law that our lawmakers can't possibly know about in the usually one to two days that they have to examine these multi-thousand pages of legislation. But because it happens right around the holidays, the news doesn't cover it. And by the time the journalists, journalists in quotes, um, get back to work in January, it's just easier to do the he said, she said of whatever, mm. you know, political nonsense of the day, like reading through these laws and finding out what's actually happening, that's work and they don't do it. And so I really wish that if the press could do two things, I would want them to watch the government funding laws and the defense authorizations. Cause that's also like, I call these, you know, when they attach stuff to bills and it hitchhikes and swaying to lie, I call it dingleberries. And those are the mm. two laws every year that have to be signed and therefore are stuffed with dingleberries. And I just feel like if more people understood that, especially in journalism, there are thousands of stories sitting there waiting to be told. And But people just don't even know where to look. You think, you think they want, I mean, obviously, you think they want to cover that stuff? Do you think yes. they want to tell people about that stuff? I think they would if they didn't have overlords telling them what to do and if mm. they actually knew where to look. I really do because I um, I actually have some friends now in corporate media and they would love to care, like cover more serious stories, but they have bosses that want them to cover the clickbait because that is how corporate media is funded is through advertisements. So it's not 
I think there might have been a time maybe when my parents were kids where the incentive was to inform the public. But now the incentive is to please the advertisers. Like your customer is not the viewer, if that is your funding model. Your customer is the advertiser. And therefore, you're going to do the fluff story on Starbucks pumpkin latte, you know, disgusting Ah. drink. And then they'll have the peppermint one in December. But some journalist who actually wanted to do good in the world is assigned that story and has to do it because it's a native ad Mm. and they're being paid to do that. And so, and then also we have a consolidation of our media too. So we used to have local news and it mm-hmm. still looks like local news and you'll have your local newscasters, but they only get to do one or two stories in that half hour that they have. Um, the other stories will be national stories that are going out. The Sinclair Broadcasting Group is the one I'm thinking of where they will just send out scripts. And so the person who is local to you will just read a script. And there's been some amazing YouTube wow. videos where you can just see these people all over the country saying the same thing. And it's just this story that gets sent out to them. So the corporatization and the advertising model has ruined our journalism. And what I'm super excited to see is there has been a very real backlash to that, which I am proud to be a part of, of people that are not taking advertising money, are finding ways to be successful. So I'm doing it using, I call it the value for value funding model. And so people send me money. I have Patreon, PayPal, all these different things. Uh, You're seeing writers that are doing it with Substack, so they get paid directly and they don't have to, you know, kiss advertiser ads. Um, There's a lot of people that are willing to support independent journalists and not just like Mm. journalists that work for independent publications, but the journalists themselves who are earning the trust of their audience directly. And the internet has facilitated that. So there is a backlash. The younger people in, in particular are aware of this. And so while the corporate media is just doing us a vast disservice, I'm starting to see the tides shift a little bit. Um, And I'm just hoping that as people like me and Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, and I know that I'm putting my name with the titans of journalism, but like those are the people I respect the most. But I'm hoping that if we can be successful, we can inspire younger journalists to skip that whole racket. because. I just I know that they want to do good work, the people in the corporate world now, but they also want their paychecks and they have houses and yeah. they have kids and they're just trying to keep those paychecks coming and there's more and more layoffs because fewer and fewer people are watching. It's a nasty, deadly cycle that's happening to them. So I don't really fault them for it, but at the same time, they're not helping anyone by staying in that system and perpetuating it. So I, I do get angry at it. Speaking of systems, our next number here is 90% because I was putting this, my little notes together and I'm like, okay, she lived in Poland for a little while. So let me try to find something cool about Poland. So what I found was 90% of Polish citizens have post-secondary education. So they have like college degree or higher. But when I met you, you talked about like, you don't have a home. You just travel <laughs> all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's clearly against, that's contrary to what we're all taught here. Get a house, blah, blah, blah. How did that start? What was the moment 
where you go, okay, we're going to do this because you travel with two very trusty companions now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have my husband and my little dog. Um, cause when we were living the, you know, the normal life in Oakland, I found her on a, a, a bike path and I was like, yep, you're mine. So yeah, we still travel with this little one in a backpack, but, um, you know, this really started, I lived in Germany. I knew I wanted to go back. I knew I wanted to stay there, but I was poor. <laughs> and so when you go to when you go to Europe and you're like, yeah, I have no money and I want I want a, a visa, they just tell you like, no, get out. So that's precisely what happened. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you cannot stay. You are a leech on our system. Leave. And so um we had like a week left and we had to leave Europe. And so we ended up flying to Hawaii with the last of our funds. And we figured Hawaii was like different enough, but we could get jobs there because it was the United States. And so we did that. And I loved Hawaii. It was a good time, but it was really hard to do paycheck to paycheck type jobs and travel. Like we both realized mm -hmm. that we needed a career, both of us. Um, that we could take on the road with us. And so we wanted to go out and keep traveling, but we had to settle down. And so we did that. It took us 10 years to build this. My husband's a mechanical um, engineer, so he's now a utility scale solar engineer. I'm very proud of him. He's one of the leaders in the industry. So when you talk about people trying to figure out how to make those giant solar farms work with batteries, like my husband is literally the one trying to figure that out. So Wow. He's he's awesome. And then we got this podcast thing to work. And we just realized that our possessions were not something we cared about. It was all IKEA crap that we'd been lugging around the country. And every time we had to move, it was a miserable experience. And I get very bored mm. very easily. And so we were just lugging our stuff around. Like even in Oakland, I think we lived in three or four different apartments in six years. Like we were just moving all the time. And so um, I was also getting really annoyed with round trip flights because there was just constantly things like you'd have podcast move at one place and then Podfest and then a wedding here and a wedding there. And then, and I kept doing these round trip flights that were killing me going back to Oakland just so I could sleep in my Ikea bed. Like, what am I doing this for? <laughs> and so we did the math. And I think being in the Bay Area was key because our rent payments were absurd. We were paying thirty five hundred yeah. a month for a two bedroom that didn't have a washer and dryer. So we're still living like college kids and like lugging our stuff in shopping carts down the hallway. And it didn't have air conditioning, which sucked in the summer. So if we wanted to live, <laughs> you know, in luxury with a washer dryer, we we're looking at like five thousand bucks. So we did the math. And if you looked at our housing plus all the hotels, we were already paying $5,000 a month in housing. And that goes really mm. far in hotels. And so um, now that I've been doing this for a while, we've realized, because we kind of, in our first year, we're like, we're going to miss having a kitchen. We're going to miss stability. And so we did hotels for a little while, and then we would do Airbnbs. And we actually hated the stability. We hated taking out our own trash. We hated making our own breakfast. Like we got real spoiled in these hotels. And with status, um, you know, the executive life, I had no idea that how this was. But once you have status in, we have it with Marriott and Hyatt, the executives live 
quite well. So it's like your breakfast is free. Your upgrades are free. You just get like a lot of free stuff when you stay in hotels Mm. for a lot of days. And so I feel like we've found a glitch in the housing matrix and it is so fun. Um, I don't miss owning anything. My husband and I are total agreement that like we kind of want to do this forever. Um, cause you know, like you live in a place for a while and you get annoyed by something like here, the blackout curtains in this hotel don't go all the way to the floor and it's pissing me off, but I'm only here <laughs> for five weeks. So I have a bunch of towels stacked up on the floor and like that would annoy yep. me if I lived here, but it's a hotel. I'll be gone soon enough. And I already have hotels that I just know I love. And so I'm already going back to them. I have my home hotels in the Bay area and, and all these different places. And so Financially, we're pretty much breaking even, but we're having so much more fun. Um, My carbon footprint is less because I'm not doing round trips anymore. I'm just going from one place to another and staying put in between. I'm not lonely at all, which is surprising. I thought that I would desperately miss my friends, which like I do, but I'm still seeing Mm -hmm. them because they're meeting us on the road and I'm seeing people from all over my life that I haven't seen in years because, you know, I don't who travels all the time. So I'm going to them. And so I'm I'm never bored. I'm never bored. And when I'm exercising, I'm running in cities that I've never seen before. So my exercise is also my sightseeing and I've never been happier or healthier in my entire life. And actually, um, we may have discussed this a little bit at podcast movement, but I've also found that because I'm not bored anymore, I'm not really drinking anymore, which I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah, I've I I can't say I've completely stopped. Like I'll still, you know, party once in a while, but I found that in the Bay mm-hmm. Area, I was poisoning myself every weekend just cuz I was bored and had nothing else to do. Mm. And um all of that has gone away. So, yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> if I start a fourth and in, in, in my last podcast, this is what it's going to be about cuz I love it. It's the best. Yeah, this sounds like a great podcast idea to just talk about being on the road and your favorite spots. Uh, Do you have a place in particular that was, I'm not going to say your favorite or your least favorite, but a place that was different than you thought it would be? Like you land, you're like, huh, okay. Like that's different. It could be in a good way or a not so good way. I'm actually going to say Poland. Bring it full circle to how you started our number. Um, Poland, and this is where it goes back to like American myths, right? Um, When I think of Poland, I think of former Soviet Union state. The myth in my head is that they are behind us somehow. Like, I don't know. But I'm not surprised to hear how educated they are because everyone speaks more than one language. And I felt very stupid there because I only speak the one. But so many people – and Polish is a hard language. But um, I was actually volunteering there um, feeding Ukrainian refugees. And the Polish people I was working with, they spoke Russian. They spoke Ukrainian. They spoke English. It was incredible. Um, And so they were very educated. Their infrastructure was insane. Like the streetcars were so efficient. They came every like three minutes um, the pedestrian infrastructure was completely separated from cars to the point that anytime I got to a major intersection, I just assumed there would be a tunnel underneath it 
that you can just skip mm. the whole intersection entirely. And then they had an entire city in those tunnels. So there would be food and nail salons and, you know, clothing stores wow. because, yeah, it was like a whole city you didn't even know existed. And it was not just in the capital. It was in Krakow, too. And, um, yeah, just efficient. The food was amazing. And I just – it's one of those places that – Honestly, I was going there because my family's Polish and so I was curious about it. I was nervous to go because mm. I thought I would be going to somewhere kind of kind of like scuzzy. I'm like, not at all. God, I loved it so much. And um and I was inspired by the infrastructure in particular to just see like, okay, like there's better ways to do all of these things than what we're doing. And actually quite yep. simple to implement <laughs> like bike lanes what a strange thing but you take one car lane and you can have these like full-on bicycle high lane highways that take a lot of traffic all of, off the road so i was just i was um impressed and then also a little ashamed with myself for having that american snottiness and just being like oh i'm mm. going to some backwards country when in in reality, like we have a lot to learn, a lot to learn from them. We really think we're just so good over here. I, yeah. I felt the same way. <laughs> I felt the same way when I, and obviously my, I haven't went country hopping like you, but you just feel like you've been brainwashed by America mm-hmm. and what it is to be in another country and how they live. You almost feel like you're better than other people. Not You don't even know it though. Until you leave the country, you get a different perspective and you go, oh, dang, they kind of do this way better than we do. A ton of stuff. <laughs> yeah. you're like, how are we the most powerful country in the world? Huh? How? Because they got it right. And this is simple. Bike lanes or putting the pedestrians into this tunnel so they don't have to deal with getting hit by cars or anything like it's like that is so simple why can't we do that and then you just look yeah. back at america and i'm sure you whenever you come from overseas and you get back here you're like ah here we go with this this yeah and no, i'm, this I'm struggling no. to control yeah. my anger yeah i'm getting really angry about it every time i almost get hit by a truck um yeah i'm getting really angry about it and i need to like simmer down Um, but like one moment in Poland that sticks out in my mind is I saw, it was just like a, but they, a lot of people use the scooters that they also use here, these damn scooters that are electric, but here we don't have the infrastructure for it. So they're on the sideways or sidewalks and like, they're constantly about to kill my dog. And so I get annoyed with them here. Mm -hmm. They didn't bother me in Poland because they have so many bike lanes and they have it set up. And I saw this kid and he couldn't have been more than like eight years old. He was around the same age as my niece, just had his little helmet on, was scooting like he does this every day, just getting himself around town. And I think about my eight-year-old niece, she can't go anywhere by herself. It's just not safe. Like the, the crosswalks aren't safe. The streets are too big. We have psychos here in a way that I I just don't yes. think they have in Europe. It's it's like these kids are more self sufficient, and so what are we doing? What are we doing to our society to make sure that we have to have our parents with us until we're eighteen? And yeah, I we could do so many things better. Up. Yeah, cutting their legs from under them. They can't. Okay, we could literally do an entire podcast because I see it every single day where these 
people are just so privileged. They don't feel like they don't have they don't have to work for anything. Everything should be given to them, and they don't know how to think for themselves. They don't know how to work for themselves. You know, you know, the parent has to talk to you. I'm like, well, the kid is in here every day. Why don't they talk to me about what's going on? Mm-hmm. And so it's yuck. We are going to move. We're going to move to our three what's. These are three questions I ask every guest. First what? I mean, I'm pretty sure that this whole podcast will fall into this category, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) What's an opinion inside your field, which I guess will be a bunch of different things, but you can pick. Inside your field, outside your field. What's an opinion that you have that will be considered unpopular? Um, the one that pops in my head is term limits. Everyone assumes that I'm for term limits and I'm really not. Um, I feel Mm. like if we have someone who's representing us well, we should be allowed to keep them for as long as possible. Like, I think it's a good thing that Bernie Sanders is still in the Senate. He's fantastic, you know, and we have a, a small handful of people that I think are wonderful in Congress and like, I want them to stay. Um, and so, yeah, everyone assumes that I want it time limited, but that's not the case. I just think we need to take more responsibility for our representatives. But yeah, everyone is always a, assuming that's something I'm going to go for. So if, you, if you're doing a good job, you stay. If you suck, yeah. you got to get out. Yeah. And it's that's our so job simple. to hire and fire. So like, we're just not doing it. So it's up to us to do it. It's, we don't need a time limit. Okay, next what? If you weren't doing your podcast in politics, what field, like what would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing now? I'm pretty sure I would be a meteorologist because <laughs> I love Ooh. the weather. Like my dream job is to be Jim Cantori. Like I really want to be that crazy person in the hurricane right now. Hurricane Ian's about to hit Florida. Like I want to be the one with the microphone who's like, it's windy. (laughs) I want to be that person so bad. But I was told you had to be good at math. And it was one of those things Mm. where the adults told a child that you're not good at a thing. And I took it to heart and I didn't follow through on what I wanted to do. And here you go. Mm. So, but yeah, I, I love the weather. I'm fascinated by it. It's, I think it's the coolest thing, even when it's horrible and doing terrible things. Um, the power of nature is just the coolest thing. Okay. Favorite, um, what is that called? Favorite season. There we go. Summer. I'm a California girl. I love the summer. So yeah, I like being warm. Summers in Texas are, woo, Houston summers, humidity. Yeah. So I'm coming to Texas for four months and it's going to be winter because it feels like summer. <laughs> and then the minute it gets mm. too hot, I'm leaving. So um yeah, I'll be there January through April. But yeah, there's a limit to how hot I want it to be. I like Southern California summers in particular. Like 80 degrees is my happy place. Um the only time I like like your level of summer. Um, like peak August in Houston. I love hot, humid summer nights. Love the nights where you can like be outside and not need a jacket. Mm. And I dig that as long as you have air conditioning, of course, to sleep in. But I do enjoy hot it's summer like nights. Like 90 degrees at nighttime. It makes 
no sense. You're still outside. Like, why am I still this hot? Why am I sweating? It's nighttime. (laughs) But then you can go night swimming, which is fun. I can't swim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then that's less fun. You just sink. (laughs) I do. I literally sink. I don't float. It's so funny because I was told I was a racist. Oh, no. I told someone they were a racist. Um, When I was working in Waikiki, I was sending people up to timeshare presentations. And so I would entice them with like free activities, right? And so I kept handing out like a dolphin swim to everyone, you know? And one of my friends was just like, black people can't swim. Like stop giving black people the dolphin swim. And I'm like, that's so racist. Like how dare you? That's so rude. And then finally some amazing sister, I think she was from Atlanta. But I was just like, girl, you need to tell black people that we want luau's, we want buffets. Don't ask us to swim. And I was like, oh, so that wasn't racist. <laughs> She's like, no, it's an actual thing. And so I actually paid for her luau. <laughs> like she got the best That's deal. Funny. She was the best. But yeah, I thought that was like so rude. And now over the course of the years, like I've actually have quite a few black friends. They're like, no, we we don't swim. <laughs> so yeah, we don't. If what it is starts that? to get a little bit high, we got to go back. But like, <laughs> did you never learn? Like, do you not take swim lessons? Like, why? How do you not know? I mean, well, when you're a poor kid, like there are no swim lessons. You just learn how to swim from a friend or somebody else's parents or something at one day at the beach or at the pool. Or you don't learn. <laughs> so I guess I just never – I think my brother knows how to swim. My wife knows how to swim. Um, Did you grow up in Detroit? Yeah, Did you grow I'm up in Detroit? Detroit? And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it gets hot there in the winter or in the summer too. Like, how did you yeah. cool off if you weren't in the water? We went to Cedar Point in the summertime. <laughs> Is that an amusement park? That's in Ohio. It's an amusement park. But we played football in the summer. We weren't, like, at the beach a lot. I don't remember going to the beach a lot. Some, but not a lot. Oh, we went to Belle Isle. I'm tripping. We went to Belle Isle, yeah. I never learned how to swim. I don't know how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny pattern that, um, yeah, I just thought couldn't possibly be true. (laughs) The stereotype is real, at least least in many, many of our cases. Yeah. I also, I okay. learned about a stereotype about white chicks when I was in Waikiki too, because all my friends were like, you white Ooh, chicks, you love yeah. bacon. And I was like, yes, yes, we do. And it's like a noticeable <laughs> pattern that all white chicks like bacon. <laughs> Barely other cultures are not as into it as we are. <laughs> but yeah. Man, it's holds. funny how some of these things are true. Mm-hmm. And then we get angry when, you know, we know that's a whole different discussion. Uh, I know. I might have just gotten it. us in oh, trouble with like, you know, no swimming and bacon, but like, whatever. <laughs> okay. Last what? You can cut that and if this you want is to. Perfect. <laughs> I won't this is offended. perfect for you. This is a great question. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone in high school? So if I were to take this to my kids tomorrow, well, not tomorrow, but in the future, and I'll go, hey, this expert has some great advice for you all. What would you say to them? God. You have a lot of experience. 
I do, but it's funny because it, it was like my life experience is what drove me here. Like there's just no way I could have told me in high school that this is what I'd be doing. Um, honestly, I feel like I didn't figure out what I wanted to do until I traveled. Like I think travel's mm. really important, like getting out of your town and getting away from – I think it was important for me to get away from the adults in my life, honestly, because – the adults in my life, as much as they love me, they were the ones that told me, you're not good at math, so don't do meteorology. Like they, they have these opinions about your life that they hold very strong. And I think until you go out and you have to kind of figure some stuff out on your own, you know, like when I was in Germany and it's 3 a.m. and the trains aren't running because I stayed out too late, I've got to get home or else I'm sleeping on a bench and there is no mommy there to figure it out for me. So I think... Yep. I think what I would tell high school students, especially those that are thinking of going to college but don't know what for yet, there's something in Australia they call a gap year. And I think that's something that I think a lot of Americans would do well to emulate, which is like in between your senior year and your freshman year of college, you travel. And I wish that that was the order I had done things in because I really did waste two and a half years of my college, just not knowing what I was mm. doing. I was going through the motions, getting the A's, but like I wasn't really learning for a purpose. Um, I think had I traveled before, I would have gotten more out of my college because I would have had that direction. And um, I just hate to see degrees wasted. And I think that's a really good way to figure out who you are much quicker than you probably would if you stay in your hometown and just, you know, work at Arby's. <laughs> I have had other people on and many of them have echoed the same sentiment. Like if you really don't know, my rule of thumb really quickly is if somebody else is paying, not like parents, I mean like scholarship, grant, some company, some big wig that is not a part of your family. If those people are paying, then go to college because that money may not be available in a year. Yeah. If it is up to you and your family to figure out how to pay for college, don't go right away if you don't know exactly what you want to do. Take time. College will be there to take all of the money that you want to give them whenever <laughs> you decide. That's basically my rule of thumb for anyone, even if you're 25. If you still don't know, you know, do something else, right? There's tons of stuff to do, but 25, you probably want to maybe get the ball rolling in some direction, but yeah. That's I mean, I didn't much, start um, this until I was 30. And honestly, like yeah. I could have used the education I got at LMU, which was, you know, in the shadow of Hollywood. I really could have used editing software classes. Like mm. there's a lot of classes I could have taken in my late twenties and still be right where I am right now. So um, I don't even think 25 is too late. Like I definitely partied my mm -hmm. 20s away and I have no regrets about it at all. So um, I think it's never too late, but to know that you are teaching our high schoolers and that's the advice they're getting, like, I really love that that's the position you're in because that's excellent advice. And I think it's cool that that's what you're doing. That makes me happy. Yes. Thank you. I think that's yeah. a great, a great spot to end it. Now, before we leave anywhere, of course, we want you to tell everyone where they can find you socials website podcast the whole shebang 
Well, I'm no longer trolling the streets of Waikiki, thanks. Thank God. I am now <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> Congressionaldish.com is where you can find the show. And I think the most valuable thing I do actually are my show notes. It's very important to me that I give everyone my sources because like, who am I? So I earn trust by giving you every one of my sources for every episode. So that's on congressionaldish.com. And of course, the podcast is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, all those things. Um, And then I also am the co-host of another podcast called We're Not Wrong, um, which is I do government, Justin Robert Young does politics, and Andrew Heaton is our... I'll call him a libertarian, but I just think he is a historian, comedian, lovely human being. And we talk about politics, but we are friends and we're not mean. And we do a lot of laughing while doing it. It's a very unique, special thing that we have. So um, yeah, the more off the cuff me exists on We're Not Wrong. But Congressional Dish is my baby. That's where you'll actually learn things. And we do have a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. This is this is really fun. I wish we could do this every week. <laughs> Hey, I've always, we'll talk. (laughs) Uh, Thank you all for listening to the Living Numbers Podcast. Make sure you guys subscribe for the extra content. Make sure you all like, share, download. Y'all know the routine. This is your host, Tony Ramble, signing off for the one I affectionately call Jen. You can find her at the Congressional Dish. And also on We're Not Wrong, which is a great name, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I will see you all in the next round. That's good. That's excellent. Was that black people swimming thing too stupid? Did I get us in trouble with that? No, no, it's fine. Okay. I think it's fine, but like, I never know what's going to make.